Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. Bona Tavada, your dolly eek. And welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple, the podcast all about words and language, with me, Giles Brandreth, and my friend, colleague, and the world's leading lexicographer, Susie Dent. And today, at the request of some of our wonderful purple people, we're going to dive headfirst into the fascinating world of Polari. Polari is a language, and thanks to Nick Craig and Joe Siegel for suggesting this, and also to our regular Kathmandu correspondent, Andrew Steele, whose request to Neliada to Camp Polari was written entirely in the coded language of Polari, and it made us smile. Now, we're going to just explore what Polari is in detail in a moment, but Susie, it is, of course, a language, a secret language. Uh, is there a history of such languages? Tell us all about the world of of Polari. It is absolutely fascinating. As you know, I've written quite a bit about sort of tribal languages and, and sort of group languages of various professions or um, people who are united by a particular passion, etc. And this one really stands on its own as something that became so kind of extensive and also quite sophisticated and was also born out of a very real need. And there's a, a brilliant uh, professor of linguistics at Lancaster University who's written a lot about it, Paul Baker. If anybody wants to look up a little bit more, he's a great authority on this. But Essentially, Polari developed from a form of language called Pagliari, which had its roots in Italian and also kind of quite basic forms of language that was used around the Mediterranean by sailors. And it was also associated with travellers and buskers, beggars. I mean, it was, I suppose, associated very much with kind of ordinary people or even those who would be considered to be sort of lowlifes or sort of slightly separate to uh, the mainstream. And it found its way into Britain, especially London, but also cities with big harbours and big ports. And during the first half of the 20th century, became used particularly by gay men and also female impersonators. And we'll come back to that. So it had this Pagliari as a base, but once it came over to us, it was supplemented with lots and lots of different slang terminology that came from all sorts of different influences. So rhyming slang, Cockney rhyming slang came into it. Back slang, which is where you spell a word or pronounce a word backwards, rather. Um, there's a bit of French, there's some Yiddish, there's military slang. And as the sort of the people who were speaking it found jobs on shore, so this was primarily sailors, they found work really in travelling fairs, in circuses and in theatres. And you will still find quite a lot of sailing terminology in theatres, which is interesting. So, for example, you will talk about rigging. So rigging a set, for example. That's the sort of influence of the people coming back and speaking this language. Flying, they work a show, they strike a set, all of those comes from boats. So it's a big melting pot of lots and lots of different influences. And as I say, it was picked up and adopted out of real need. So this language, beginning really in Victorian times, 19th century, adopted, used by sailors in the Mediterranean, then used by actors, show people, uh, possibly sex workers, people living on the mm -hmm. you know the illicit side, uh, mm -hmm. and eventually the British gay subculture. 
at the yes. times when homosexuality, male homosexuality, was against the law and female homosexuality is simply not talked about. Is exactly. That right? yeah. Exactly right. And so it became both a way of expressing oneself, it was a way of identifying oneself as gay, but also it was a uniting thing because as you say the law was very much against homosexuality. So it was a it was a way of giving solidarity and unity as so many of these lang- you know these kind of languages are. And it was full of camp, it was full of irony, it was full of innuendo, but it was also really resilient. And it it just, in some ways, encompassed a kind of worldview, if you like, in the face of, you know, what other groups now are facing, you know, whether it's physical violence, whether it's trolling on Twitter, etc. So it was incredibly important. And a lot of speakers, and Paul Baker goes into this as well, they gave themselves sort of monikers like Scotch Flow or Diamond Lil, etc. These kind of alternative identities, which kind of, again, was a way of sort of almost reclaiming themselves. So in the early years, it combines Italian words, Romany words, English words, obviously, rhyming slang, backslang, mm. as you've mentioned, mm-hmm. sort of thieves slang, underworld talk. Yes. Uh, and it kind of filters within its own society. And in a moment, we're going to talk about how it became mainstream. But are there other examples of languages like Polari that over the centuries, different minority groups have used to communicate amongst themselves? Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's how any kind of tribal language emerges. So if you think about criminal slang, for example, which is how Cockney rhyming slang we think began, you know, that was a coded way of, as I say, both identifying yourself and also communicating and sort of you know, going below the radar of those who who didn't understand it and so ignored it or was just completely impenetrable to those who did hear it. But, you know, they, they couldn't work out what was being said. And Polari, it's quite interesting. It's not a true language and it's not go, it hasn't got its own grammar or its own syntax, but it has a very distinct vocabulary, whether it's your rear, which is a, an example of backslang, that's hair, or you're shaving your lallies, which are your legs, or powdering your eeks and your eeks your faces. I mean, in some ways it was really born for showbiz because it is quite kind of glitzy and and, and showy. Yes, because um, I began with bona tavada your dolly eek. Uh, bona tavada means bono is obviously Latin for good yes. uh, or Italian. Tovada is, is to see, I assume. To see, your, yeah. Your dolly means beautiful, like a like a doll, lovely. Eek means face. So bona tavada your dolly eek means great to see a lovely face. Is, yeah, Isn't exactly. that bizarre? In fact, I can. How good are you at Polari? Because I could give you a little test if you like. I'm not very good at it at all. I'll come in a moment to how I was introduced to it by my friend Kenneth Williams, who could speak fluent Polari for a reason. I'll explain that in mm. a moment. But I've never really mastered it. So do test me. No, it's it's really hard. And we, we should talk about some of the words that Polari either popularised or actually even originated and how they've um, settled in the language, because there are quite a few. But these are some examples of ones that I think aren't immediately obvious because they don't use any, certainly any mainstream English words. What about, could I have a troll around your latte? Can I have a troll? Troll is to have a walk. To go trolling, yeah. to go to go a little promenade is to troll. Yeah. I suppose like a trolley moving around. Around, yeah. your, around your where? Your latte. Your latte. Now, I don't know where that means. Is that your flat? 
That's your house. Your house, yeah. your home. I wonder why yeah. that, what the origin of that is. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I'm not completely sure. Anyway, that's good. I got that one. Lay your lappers on the strillus boner. I'm not pronouncing these very well. No, you're not saying with the confidence you need. What's it? Lay your what's on okay, what? Okay, your lappers. Your lappers are your feet? Yeah, it'd be law, I think, rather than lay. Lappers on the strillus boner. So strillus is S-T-R-I-L-L-A-S. Well, your lappers are your legs, are they? Um, I think they're probably going to be your fingers, actually. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I, just, yes. I have to look this one up myself. This is a test for myself as well. Keep going. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be looking it up. This is play something nice on the piano. Oh, I love it. But, oh, I love it. Say it but, again. I, well, hang on. I'm going to look up lappers because I want to check that this is... Um, fingers, maybe. So this is actually, as you're about to tell us, this is what appeared in San, in Round the Horn with Sandy instructing Julian. Yeah, place your fingers on the piano. That's what it is. Lay your lappers on the strillers boner. Well, maybe that's the point for me to talk about how yes, please. this Polari became mainstream. This, yes. It, it's very interesting, I think, the whole history of the coming out of homosexuality, certainly within the British Isles. And it... It took a long time to come out, really a century and more. What many people don't realise that is in the 19th century, in fact, it was only legislation introduced in the 1880s that, for example, led to the imprisonment of Oscar Wilde for gross indecency in 1895. And there are funny stories to tell, or interesting stories and some funny ones, about how that came about, uh, an amendment called the Labouchere Amendment to the Criminal Justice Act of something like 1884 made uh, homosexual acts illegal. And under that legislation, Oscar Wilde and others were imprisoned. And homosexuality remained, um, acts of homosexuality remained imprisonable offences up until 1967. And there were the, the campaigns sort of gained momentum after the Second World War, particularly through the 1950s, to get the law changed. And I'm proud to say, in fact, when I was a schoolboy, aged only 12, I became the youngest then member of the organisation that was trying to change the law oh, that wow. outlawed homosexual acts. And so this is an area in which I was very interested. And I mm. got to know many of the people who were caught up in the sort of the crosshairs of this legislation and ended up in prison or certainly being found guilty. One of them being the great actor Sir John Gielgud, mm -hmm. uh, another being Lord Montague of Bewley, who was imprisoned. And there were lots of cases that caused people to have concerns. And eventually there was a report published called the Wolfenden Report that recommended reform. And eventually the first of the reforms was introduced in 1967. Coinciding with this culturally, homosexuality was becoming more mainstream, mainly in a kind of comedic way. And there was a hugely popular radio program called Round the Horn, hosted by an avuncular uh, performer called Kenneth Horn, had a wonderful voice, and he played very much the straight man. And on Round the Horn were two amusing characters known as Julian and Sandy. And they would introduce themselves by saying, hello, um, I'm Julian, this is my friend Sandy, uh, or I'm Sandy, this is my friend Jules. And there were these this double act who were clearly camp figures, homosexual mm -hmm. figures. Not that that was ever openly said. 
They were named after Julian and Sandy, after two famous gay composers. In the 1950s, the two most successful British musicals were Salad Days and The Boyfriend. Salad Days was written by Julian Slade Mm -hmm. and Dorothy Reynolds, and The Boyfriend was written by Sandy Wilson. And these were two very different people. Julian was extremely sweet. Sandy was quite waspish. They were both brilliant, and I was lucky enough to know both of them. Anyway, Julian and Sandy were famous for their musicals, and they then became these characters, Julian and Sandy, in Round the Horn. Week after week, Kenneth Williams and Hugh Paddock played Julian and Sandy, and they came on either as hairdressers or as friends or as maybe even two sailors. They came on as two characters, and they talked Polari. And at its peak, this radio program, this is before, you know, television was taken over everything, this radio program, Round the Horn, was attracting audiences of more than, wait for it, 20 million listeners in the United Kingdom alone. Wow. And the Julian and Sandy sketches that took place every week were amongst the most popular. And somehow, they managed to talk in Polari on the show. And so... As a result of that, people, ordinary people, civilians, as the entertainers would call them, began using Polari language in everyday speech. And so there are phrases like, oh, Jogé, that is Jogé, meaning, well, I'm not quite sure what it means. It means lovely. Well, Jogé is unspellable. I mean, it's got three different spellings in the Oxford Dictionary. Oh, which are they? Z H U Z H. Z-H-U-S-H and Z-H-O-O-S-H. Now, that's interesting. It's in the Oxford Dictionary. This is Polari words in the Oxford English Dictionary. And what does zhuzhuzhi mean? Well, it's to kind of smarten up, isn't it? But it's so much more than that. And it may be onomatopoeic. So there is a theory that it's it kind of represents the sound, for example, of your hands ruffling velvet. Or, I mean, I think it probably was born for its sound. Or, Or it's got some hidden you know, origin that we that we don't really know about. But it did come from Polari. And, and you know, especially if you're in the TV world, you know, well, that needs a bit of a zhuzh. We talk about it all the time, theatre likewise. Absolutely. I mean, when Kenneth Williams would see me in one of my colourful jumpers in the early 1980s when we became good friends, he would say, oh, lovely bit of a zhuzh. Oh, you're yes. all zhuzhed up nice, aren't you? Yes. Very good. So that zhuzh, the, the reverse of zhuzh, because if you're zhuzhed, you're, you're, you're looking pretty good, is naff. Something that's yes. naff. Now, is that is that Polari? Because it's a word we use all the time now. Something that isn't very good is naff. Yeah, well, again, that featured in Julian Sandy, didn't it? Something like, I couldn't be doing with a garden like this. I mean, all of them horrible little naff gnomes. So, Round the Horn definitely brought the word into the wider British vocabulary, and it became really famous when Princess Anne was reported to have told photographers to naff off when they <laughs> snapped her coming off her horse at the Babington Horse Trials. Although apparently, Jazz, you might know this, one reporter who was there said that this was actually a euphemism by journalists because she actually said <laughs> something a lot worse. Oh, I can um, believe it. I can believe yes. it, yes. So to what extent, the, you know, the verb and the adjective are connected is disputed. So the verb is recorded in the 1950s, and that might simply be a variation on F off. So if you naff off, you F off. And F is obviously a written version of the letter F, which stands for fuck. So others think that NAF is an acronym based on the phrase not available for fucking, though that is almost certainly what we call a backronym. So that's almost certainly something that is, you know, what has been worked backwards. Some dictionaries say it was formed as backslang from fan, which was a form of fanny. So obviously this is all quite rude. This is in the British sense of the female genitals. 
And some say it comes from NAFI, N-A-A-F-I, the Navy, Army and Air Force, who provide, you know, canteens and shops for British service personnel. But why they would be NAF, I'm not sure. Well, because the, the food best... wasn't up to much. Oh, it's NAF. Oh, OK. You go to the NAFI, that's NAF. NAF food. That, to me, sounds most credible because a lot of these guys, particularly, for example, Kenneth Williams, I know, in the late 1940s, he was in the uh, British Army and in the Far yeah. East. And they were there was a concert party they did where they, the blokes dressed as women. And he was there with Stanley Baxter, with John Schlesinger, with Peter Nichols, who then wrote a play about it all that became mm. a film with John Cleese. Anyway, that's by the by. But they would have known the NAFI and they would certainly have said the food there was NAF. NAF means bad. It's negative, isn't it, basically? Yeah, we're saying it's kind of, it's not bad so much. It's a bit NAF. It's just like it's not cool, is it? And actually, the most likely origin, I know you like the NAFI one, is that it comes, and you have to think about the influences that we talked about with Polari, the 16th century Italian NAFA, G-N-A-F-F-A, which was a not very nice person. And in Polari, you will find things like NAF-OMI, like a dreary man. So it, that's the most plausible origin, is that it takes us back to um, Italian. Oh, but, you know, who knows? OMI is a kind of version of R. Is it Omi? Exactly. Oh, no, what an Omi, yes. Yeah, ombre, all of that, yes. We think of this as camp language. Is camp a Polari word? No. Well, camp is in sort of sense of being affected, I suppose. It was certainly popularised by Polari. I don't think it kind of came directly from there. It, it arose certainly before Polari had its heyday. So this was in the early 20th century for something that was kind of ostentatiously theatrical and uh, maybe extravagantly effeminate as it was originally used. But what, we're not completely sure where that comes from. What I think is interesting about camp behaviour is we now associate it with homosexuality. Mm. The early days, it wasn't associated with homosexuality in the sense that that kind of flamboyant behaviour became associated with homosexuality because of Oscar Wilde. Prior to that, people who were flamboyant, who dressed in a flamboyant way and whose mannerisms were exaggerated, were yeah. people often like Lord Byron. They were characters who might appear in Regency comedy or in Restoration comedy. They were over the top, but they were often wildly heterosexual. Mm -hmm. And the association of that kind of behaviour with homosexuality, I think, comes from the mockery of Oscar Wilde for being an aesthete and then subsequently, you know, with his downfall, his arrest and imprisonment, it being associated with homosexuality. So it's interesting how things change over the years. People who mm -hmm. are not camp could be said to be butch, is, is yeah. that is we that a Polari word? The other day. Do you remember I was talking about the butcher's knife, which is how it kind of began, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary. So something that was considered to be kind of strong and possibly violent. So that is how butch began. And then it took on the idea of being tough and violent, physically fit. And then in the 1940s, a lesbian whose appearance was regarded as masculine, and that was in explicit contrast with femme. And then in a male homosexual, couple again it was a partner who took on a more active role either sexually or, or sort of you know in, in a more general sense so that was probably popularized by Polari but certainly didn't seem to have originated there but another example actually is the word chav which I'm not sure actually pervaded other languages across uh, the globe or other Englishes across the globe but certainly in British English it exploded in 2004 as a really derogatory nickname for somebody 
who was considered to be socially inferior, dressed kind of ostentatiously, and was just a way of of looking down on other people, really. And it became really quite nasty. But actually, that was Chavi was used in Polari, and that has its roots in Romani. And you can see the connection between the Romani language, the traveller's language, quite often they were involved in carnivals and fairs and entertainment. And in their language, it simply meant a friend or an, a sort of fellow adult man, or it could also mean a child. It was completely innocent, and it was only in mainstream English that it took up its nasty tones. What about the Kazi? <laughs> yeah, I, I, the Kazi, that definitely was popularised by Polari. And uh, it was, yes, what, yeah. what does it mean? What's the origin? So it means the toilet, a toilet is your Kazi, and it comes from the Italian casa, meaning a house or a home. Ah. So, it, yeah, so then it became a specific part of your home, if you like. And I think it's had a sort of brief resurgence, hasn't it, Polari, which is nice. I mean, obviously the need for it disappeared as homosexuality became legalised, etc. And I think maybe itself was was begun to be seen as being quite naff, I suppose. Yes. Um, but it has had a resurgence in various books written in Polari and various short films in Polari. I remember Kenneth Williams saying to me once, we don't need Polari anymore. Now the love that used the dare not speak his name yeah. is shouting the odds from the rooftops. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I love hearing it because there's a kind of quaint beauty to it. And what was so brilliant about the Julian and Sandy sketches is the fluency with which mm. they spoke it, the we can't master. Are there any other Polari turns of phrase you want to share with us? Oh, my goodness. Um, there are loads, and I wish I could speak it better. I feel like I should. There's dish, which means attractive. So yes. I suppose we have dishy, don't we? Oh, interesting. Is that the origin of someone being dishy? Is Polari? Yeah, oh, I think it might be, actually. Oh, you say, well, wasn't she a dish? Uh, interestingly enough, if you read Kenneth Williams' diaries, and mm. he k kept a daily diary all his life, and it's been brilliantly edited and is still available, uh, he uses these turns of phrase quite regularly. Indeed, he describes me in his diaries, almost um, <laughs> many years ago, almost the first time he met me as being quite a dish. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Ooh, ooh. yeah. I mean, I was a lot younger then. Susie, uh, you've not, you didn't know me when I was a dish. You know me now. I'm a cup and saucer. Actually, I'm an old, I'm an old mug. <laughs> You're an old spout. <laughs> yeah, but once upon to. a time, I was a dish. Uh, I'm sure you were, and you still are, no obviously. Way. I've just done a bit of decoding and worked out eek. We were talking about eek for face. Yes. That is back slang because it's ecaf, face. And then we oh. took off the calf bit. So that's really difficult to unpick, but but lovely when you do. Nish means no more, N-I-S-H. And your Aunt Nels are your ears. And I'm trying to work out why your Aunt Nels oh. would be your ears. Your Aunt Nellies, Nellies, Nellies. Aunt Nels are your ears. Ears, ears. I don't know. I'm going to have to work that one out. If your any aunt, of our yes. brilliant purple people can work out Aunt Nellies for ears or Aunt Nels, please let us I know. I hope we have some fluent Polari speakers among our listeners. I sense that we oh, do. So Mm, uh, I think you our, might be right. You know a lot more than us. Probably. Among our camp followers, do please uh, mm. get in touch. It's purple at something else.com. Any more that you want to give us? I have got, see if you can translate this one for me. Uh, oh, actually, this was because there was a Bible reading. Um, so uh, there was um, the longest ever Polari Bible reading. Now, the Bible has often been translated into hip hop and various different 
again, tribal languages, I suppose, and Polari is no different. And there were lines such as, and the rib which the Duchess Gloria had lulled from Homie made she a Pallone and brought her unto the Homie. And that's the rib which God had taken from man was made into a woman and brought to the man. I love it. Could you read it in Polari again so we can now understand it? Yeah, and the rib which the Duchess Gloria had lulled from Homie made she a Pallone, maybe it's a Pallone, and brought her unto the Homie. Oh, I love it. The Duchess <laughs> Gloria is God, is it? Yes. Oh, she's I, the du- I, I love it. The not Duchess. sure that went down too well, actually, but I have to say that there are lots and lots of different versions of, of the Bible and other canonical works that have been translated into various languages. Can I say, God, the Duchess Gloria, made language, so I'm, she's not going to object. I'm sure the Duchess Gloria is revelling it. There's probably <laughs> a little corner of heaven reserved for Polari speakers. For Polari speakers. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be brilliant? I think we need to take a break, don't we? We need to take a break and then get in touch with us if you've got... Polari questions or Polari experiences. Polari people join the purple people. In fact, I think purple people are naturally Polari people. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This is Something Rhymes with Purple, and we get letters. They're sent to us uh, via email at this address, purple at somethingelse.com, and something spelt without a G. And we've been talking Polari, and here's a query about a word, minga. I think that's the way you pronounce it. And it has a kind of, to me, Polari ring to it. Anyway, the inquiry comes from Ian Ahmet. Dear Susie and Jazz, I have loved your podcast throughout this crazy pandemic and passed on good vibes to all I know. Thank you for that. Just to been to see the fabulous Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Oh, yes, it's a great musical. And I tried to explain to my Colombian husband the meaning of Minga. Our friend swears it was coined by Jade Goody in Big Brother. Hmm. But I'm sure we used to use it in high school in the 90s, UK. Mm. Any ideas and earliest record of the word Minga? Forever purple. Ian Ahmet is getting in touch from Bogota, Colombia. Wow. Well, it is pretty recent, Minga. So you'll first find records of it in the 1990s. But it's Origin is quite funny. As so often with four-letter words, and I'm talking about Ming here, its origin is fairly elusive. That That is not a scientific statement, by the way, but just quite often some of the words. That I always say four letters in search of an etymology. Ming, we know, is Scottish, and it meant, or does mean, human excrement, sorry oh. about that, oh. or an unpleasant smell. And oh. um, we don't really know where that itself comes from, but you will find it a lot in Irvin Welsh's stories and it's probable that Minga derives from that. So a Minga is a pretty horrible term for an ugly or unattractive person and unfortunately it's often used about women. But yeah, that's our best guess is it actually is someone considered unpleasant and likening them to, yeah. An unpleasant smell. Yes, that's the Minga. Now the next 
question comes from Matthew Wilkinson. This is Ian Giles. I've newly discovered your podcast and it's been, oh, he says it's been lovely going through our back catalogue. He lives in Cardiff, but his partner comes from a small town in the valleys called, mm, how to pronounce this, Mestek? M-A-E-S-T-E-K. Okay, Mestek. When we travel there, she would remark that it is out in the sticks. I wonder why we say this. Could this be anything to do with the mythical river Styx or could it be something much more straightforward? It is much more straightforward and much more literal, this one, because sticks here are used in the slang sense of trees. If you think about the phrase, we might uh, use similarly in the backwoods. And it basically became a byword for a rural place at the beginning of the 20th century. I've got lots of words for that, actually. We've got the boondocks as well, haven't we? Which comes from a Tagalog uh, word used in the Philippines. Boondock meaning a mountain and then used for a remote and wild place. And it was picked up by occupying American soldiers in the Philippines. Could you live out in the boondocks? Could you live in the middle of nowhere? Oh, I'd love to. Would you really? I've been thinking about it quite a lot. Yeah, I would absolutely love to. Would you? No, I don't think I no. could possibly stand it. I, I want to live... In the middle of everything, I want to. I don't think yeah. I could live in anything that wasn't the equivalent of a capital city. Oh, I think I'd quite like it. Anyway, watch this space. I'll be. I'll be calling you from the Isle of Skye. That was very appealing. Shall I give you my trio? Please. Okay. Um, well, Sardinia is not bad. Um, if you wanted to go, it's not a remote place, but if you wanted to um, emigrate somewhere, Sardinia would be good. And my first word is Sardonian. Um, and Sardonian, linked to sardonic, um, as you probably guess, a Sardonian is one who flatters with deadly intent. And it's probably a reference to the Sardinian plant. And the Sardinian plant was said to kill you if you ate it by producing horrible laughter and a rictus grin that was then completely fatal. And sardonic looks back to uh, sardonicus, the Sardinian plant. And Sardonian, I just think we all know someone who flatters with deadly intent. Um, so that's one for uh, those of us who do. A jettatore or a jettatore, J-E-T-T-A-T-O-R-E, it comes from the Italian for bad luck. And it's somebody who brings misfortune with them. Sometimes I feel like I'm that person. Giettatore, one who brings bad luck. I don't know why I'm saying it with a terrible Italian accent. Giettatore. You're doing it with that accent because we've been talking Polari. I guess so, but if I had a better accent, it would work better. But anyway, that's the second one. And the third one, you know know you've heard of Ethelred the Unready. Mm -hmm. And you probably think that Unready is the fact that he was ill-prepared. In fact, he was ill-advised because the ready bit goes back to an old English word for counsel, as in C-O-U-N-C-E-L. And if you are readless, really, is how we would pronounce it now, R-E-D-E-L-E-S-S, you look back to that same root and it means without counsel or not knowing what to do, particularly in an emergency. So if you are rubbish in an emergency, you are readless or readless, R-E-D-E-L-E-S-S. Very good. Those are your three. People often ask where they can find them. You can find them by listening to every episode. <laughs> but we both of us publish books of different kinds and feature some of these words in them. One day we'll get around, I'm sure, to our Something Rhymes with Purple book. But meanwhile, can I recommend you just go to wherever you buy your books from, I hope your local independent bookstore, and get them to look up Susie Dent. It's D-E-N-T. And you will find there a raft of wonderful (laughs) books about words and language. 
I can recommend any one of them. I have them on my bedside. And actually, they're marvellous things to dip into when you're just... No, it's true. And if you wake up at sort of two in the morning and can't go to sleep, it's a perfect... One of your books is perfect. Not that it makes you nod off, but actually... Well, that's what Jimmy Carr would say, uh, is that you're you're either standing in a charity shop, if you're seeing a line (laughs) of my books, or that they're more more than being a tranquilizer. they're a euthanasia is what he would say, which is very mean. But thank you. I appreciate that. And I've done a, a book called Dancing by the Light of the Moon, which contains many of the poems that I share with you at the end of these podcasts. It's an anthology, really, of poems to learn by heart. And there are several hundred poems in the book, Dancing by the Light of the Moon. Mm. I've got a poem for you. And the poem I've got this week is by uh, A.E. Hausman. And I was thinking about it while I was writing my childhood memoir. And because it's a poem really encouraging you to live in the present and not look back at the past, though I've had to do so for the book I've been writing. And it contains a very famous turn of phrase. And until I read the poem, I didn't realise this is where the phrase came from. Into my heart, an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again. The past is another country. Those blue remembered hills were then and there. And we've got to live in the here and now, which is where I'm very happy to live because I'm living virtually with you, Susie, in our lexicographical, or our lexicographical, <laughs> what is the word? Lexicographical. Lexicographical bubble. Um, well done. So thank you very much for, for listening to Something Rhymes with Purple. Do um, recommend us to your friends. We love to spread the word. We want more and more purple people. And feel free to get in touch with us. We are purple at somethingelse.com, and that's something without a G. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale and the fantabuloso man himself, except we never ever get to see him these days. Oh no, yes no, Gully. Actually Gully, it sounds like a Polari name. It does. <laughs>